All right, we are in uh, a bit of a series here on exploring the unseen world. When we've looked at the Elohim in a couple of messages and this sphere of the, the world that's around us everywhere and totally unaware for the most part of the activity that's going on behind the scenes, as it were, and what God is doing in fulfilling his plans and purposes for you and I and this earth. And that's what this is all about, seeing what God is doing in his government, with his family, in the heavens. It's not all about just here on earth. He has a family in heaven as well, and he is doing things, as it were, making things happen, as it were, sometimes that we just marvel at, and we don't know about it until we pray, and we see the results of our prayers, and then we know that God has heard us when things happen, and that's exciting. That excites us, because we don't get to see visibly what is taking place. It's the unseen world, that spiritual world. And what we want to look at today, we mentioned it uh, as far as when we were looking through the various uh, creatures, as it were, God's heavenly creation called Elohim. And the word Elohim simply means anything that does not have a body. Any of God's creatures that are bodiless. And that does happen to us, by the way, because when we die, we lose our body and we go to another realm of existence. And we looked at that with Samuel, where he is called an Elohim. And that's what we will be called. And it's nice to know that because it lets you know that there is life after death. There is more out there. And there is an existence that we will go into and experience that we cannot experience here. Another part of that uh, realm that we looked at was God's counsel in Psalm 82 in particular, and Psalm 89. And we want to delve a little bit deeper in that, uh, in that area this morning so that we can get a, a larger picture and a, a more fuller picture of God's government in the heavens. And then hopefully make an application of that so that we can say, well, that was nice. We learned about that, but what does that mean to me today? When I walk away from here this morning, what should I take away from learning this? And believe me, I think it should, I know, I, not I think, I know it should affect all of us in a very specific way, in a very meaningful way. Now, it just by way, and if you want to turn to Psalm 82, we'll just do a very brief review of that. But in Psalm 82, um, <clears throat> the psalmist opens uh, there with uh, God, Elohim, standing, it says, in the congregation of the mighty. 
and he judges among the gods. And we took note of that, that there is the appearance of the word Elohim twice in that verse. One time it's translated singular, God. The other time it's translated plural, gods. And we took note of that, uh, that here in this passage, uh, the psalmist is describing uh, God in his assembly. And, that, and by the way, when it says the congregation of the mighty, the word mighty there might be a little misleading because it's the word El, E-L. It's another word that's translated as God, and quite frankly, in many other translations, and I think it would be better if it were, that God stands in the congregation of the mighty or the assembly of God. Elohim stands in the assembly of God. He, in other words, he takes his place when he calls, as it were, for a meeting, and his heavenly host surrounds his throne. He takes his place of authority. And we'll find out later on, one of the, one, in one of those instances, it tells us that God sat on a throne. He took his place in a place of authority. In other words, it's like being the committee chairman. He was the head. One of the other things that we discussed about Elohim and the fact that there are many Elohim in the unseen world and they are bodiless is the fact that Yahweh is not like any other Elohim because they are all created by him. So even though he is like them, they are not like he is. And of course, that makes sense, does it not? The fact that he created them all, he is unique and stands alone. And so that, <clears throat> excuse me, that is what should come to the surface in Psalm 82 and verse 1, is to recognize that when God stands in the congregation or the divine council, he stands alone. Nobody else could ever take that place and stand there where he is. This is his place and his alone. Now, um, in, in the Net Bible, they, they describe this psalm in this way. He says, the psalmist pictures God standing in the assembly of El, where he accuses the gods, the small g gods, of failing to, to promote justice on the earth. And God pronounces sentence upon them, announcing that they will die like men. And having witnessed the scene, the psalmist then asks God in verse 8 to establish his just rule over the earth. And it's interesting that in this passage, the thing that he is accusing them of is failing to carry out one of the things that is most dear and precious to God. And he names them in verses 3 and 4. When he says in verse 2, how long will you judge unjustly, that is, rule, or carry out your responsibilities that I've delegated to you and, you, and you show partiality to the wicked. That's being an unjust judge. He tells them in verse three and, verses 3 and 4, here's what you should have been doing. The New King James says, defend the, fo the, the, the poor and the fatherless. And then he goes on to say, 
to do justice to the afflicted and the needy. He tells them um, uh, to, care, to care for them, to take care of their needs. They should have been giving their attention on the earth to the poor, the needy, the orphans, and the widows. That was their delegated responsibility, and they failed in it. And because of their failure, he gives them a judgment that says, you're going to die like men. Now, I'll be honest with you, I don't really quite understand how that can be, that a, that a, a spirit being can die like men, but that's what he says is going to happen to them. And it's a judgment that is obviously very severe. Over in Psalm 89, and verses 5 and 8, if you want to turn over there just a couple of pages, beginning in verse 5, it says, Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings, that is, and here the word heavenly beings is literally the sons of God, is like the, the Lord, a God feared in the counsel of the holy ones, great and awesome above all that are around him. And that word around, we looked at that earlier, it means to encircle those who are surrounding God's thrones. And we're going to see this in another passage later on. Verse 8, O Lord God of hosts, who is as mighty as you, O Lord? Your faithfulness surrounds you. And you'll notice very specifically the assembly of the holy ones. Some of your translations might say saints. It's holy ones. That's what a saint is, a holy one. What is a holy one? A holy one is one who has been faithful to God, who is loyal and devoted to him, who obeys his commandments, who follows him and, and does justice. That's a holy one. If you don't do those things, then what are you? Unholy. You are ungodly. Or you're like those gods in Psalm 82. You're wicked. That's what God pronounces upon them. God expects obedience, not just on our part, but from his heavenly creatures as well. His design for all of us is to humbly obey him. Now, and you'll notice in verse 7, it says there, the, again, the, it says the assembly of the holy ones in verse 5. It's the council of the holy ones in verse 7. The words assembly and council there are two different words. And so the psalmist is focusing very narrowly, not just on the assembly, the congregation, but these who encircle God's throne and surround him. Over in Daniel chapter 7, if you want to turn over there real quick, Daniel chapter 7 and verses 9 and 10. I'm going to have to hurry if I want to get through all of these as usual. Daniel chapter 7 and verses 9 and 10, where he says, As I watched, thrones were set in place. And an ancient one, or your translation might say the ancient of days, took his throne. It just means an old, aged one, the ancient of days. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. 
His throne was fiery flames and his, and his wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and flowed out from his presence. A thousand thousands served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood attending him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. Now that's quite a passage. But the first thing we want to see here or take note of is that there are multiple thrones in this scene. You'll notice where he said thrones were set in place, plural. There are many who share God's rulership over the earth. And they are depicted as sitting on thrones who take that authority and fulfill that responsibility. Um, but you'll notice the Ancient of Days, it says, takes his throne. This ancient one, this aged one, is singled out for taking his throne. And it gives a more fuller description here then of his throne. I mean, it's pretty awesome. His clothing is white like snow, but the throne, it says, is like fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. You know what that points out is that his throne is unique. It's not like any other throne in heaven. It stands alone. And I want, I'm going to be repeating over and over and over, emphasizing the uniqueness of Yahweh, that he is God alone. Even though they are all called Elohim, he is unique above all others. And the scripture repeatedly names him as the one who created all things, the sun, the moon, the seas, the stars, the moon, everything, and us, every living thing. And he took his throne, and he sat on that throne. And it says that around his throne was 10,000 times 10, well, here it's a thousand thousands, in Revelation 5, verse 11, it says 10,000 times 10,000 plus thousands and thousands. I, don't have, I'm, I, don't, I barely have the mathematical ability to multiply it. I can do the 10,000 times 10,000 because I've got it right here as 100 million. After that, I'm done for. But just think about that. 100 million plus thousands upon thousands more surrounding his throne. And in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14, it says all of his saints have an angel that minister to them. And you think about all of the Christians in this world that have a, an angel, a ministering spirit, ministering to them. There are multiplied millions upon millions of heavenly beings. It's not just here on earth that we have our so-called seven billion plus whatever else we have in, in history to add to that. There are billions of creatures in God's heaven. And, they, and it says here they, they are around the throne. I, I cannot fathom or picture that scene and what it must be like. But we see then at the end of that passage, we saw that the court sat in judgment and the books were opened. 
when he talks about the, the court, it says here that God convened this court for the purpose of rendering judgment on the earth. That's the context if we look at the entire chapter 7 and what God had been revealing to Daniel. In other words, Daniel had this vision, and this vision was allowing Daniel to see into the heavens, and this is what he saw. I don't, I mean, it's, if we had that kind of a vision, I think that'd be kind of a scary thing to see the kinds of things that Daniel was allowed to see. But he revealed it to us. And the records of all the activities of those on earth were in those books, and they were opened, and judgment was rendered. What's the point? The point here is for us to recognize is that God involved others in rendering judgment. Although he had the final authority, he involved other thrones, other rulers to participate in this court. And they sat with him in judgment. And then if you look down at verses 25 and 26, we see the, the, this scene, the conclusion of this scene, where he says here, he shall speak words against, this is the Antichrist, he shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the holy ones of the Most High. I like that phrase, wear them out. And shall attempt to change the sacred seasons and the law and they shall be given into his power for a time, two times, and half a time. Now, I don't relish the idea that it's the saints here, the holy ones, who are going to be worn out. I want to be one of those. That tells us something about what we have in store for us in the future, what God's holy ones have awaiting them. In verse 26, it says, Though then the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion, his rule, shall be taken away to be consumed and totally destroyed. Verse 27, the kingship and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the who? The holy ones of the Most High. Those who have shown loyalty and devotion and obedience to Yahweh will be the participants in this kingship and sharing in that coming rule with God. And he says there, their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions or kingdoms shall serve and obey him. Do you notice the participation of those holy ones who not only sat in court in judgment, but also will share in this future rule. And it says here, it will be an everlasting kingdom, and these other dominions shall serve and obey them. When he says to those who are faithful servants, you rule over 10 cities, and you rule over five, this is what he's talking about right here. This is what we have to look forward to. But those who have been unfaithful, 
cast out or cast down with no hope, no possibility of sharing in these wonderful joys because that's what he says. Enter thou into the joy of your Lord. What joy it will be. So when Daniel mentions the court, we need to understand that the, the, the term court here, uh, it, it carries the idea of those who sit there have the authority to judge and do what they've been put there for. God, in other words, delegates authority to these rulers and judges. And these holy ones he mentions here, talking about being saints and talking about wearing them out. Some translations will say persecuting the holy ones, the saints. They are the ones who will receive this rulership and participate in it. Over in Job chapter 15, you don't need to turn there because they were going to be, only be there a short time, but there's a verse there that says, um, I think it's Eliphaz that was uh, questioning Job, and he says, are you the first man that was born? <laughs> That's like, I love that question. Who do you think you are? Of course, we know that was Adam. But he says, who, or who brought you forth before the hills? Have you listened in the counsel of God, he says? Have you ever been privy, Job, to listen in on God's heavenly counsel and to know what's going on there? He says, and do you limit wisdom to yourself? And the word counsel here is the same word we saw back in Psalm 89, verse 7, where it refers to the heavenly, it's translated the, the heavenly counsel of the holy ones. It's the same thing. And over in Jeremiah chapter 23, if you want to turn there, Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 16, where the scripture says, thus says Yahweh of hosts. Now notice that little phrase that we just pay very little attention to. Yahweh of hosts, armies, multitudes. He says, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesied to you, filling you with vain hopes. In other words, he's talking about the false prophets here. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of Yahweh. They say continually to those who despise the word of Yahweh, it's going to be okay with you. It will be well with you. Peace. Go on your way. Everything's fine. Of course, that's what they wanted to hear. But in verse, verse 18, he says, For who among them these prophets, these false prophets, has stood in the counsel of Yahweh? And of course, that's a rhetorical question, and we know what that means. Not a one of them. It's a simple answer. You've never been there. You did not have privy information. Some translate that the secret counsel. That's what I, I like that word privy. Have you had a little opening there where you could listen in on God's council meeting and see what's going on? But you know what? That's exactly what happened to any true prophet. Any true prophet, every one of them to be a prophet had a, a divine encounter 
with Yahweh. Now, in many cases, they met him face to face. He appeared unto them, people like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and Isaiah, for that matter. And I would suspect that it was probably a personal appearance in every case to any true prophet. And you know what he goes on to say then? None of them have stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and hear his word or paid attention to his word and listened. But in verse 21, he says, I did not send the prophets, yet they ran anyway. And that, that phrase, yet they ran, means they, they went to pronounce and proclaim their prophetic vision. But he said they weren't doing anything for me. They just were speaking their own minds. And so I didn't speak to them, yet they prophesied. Verse 22, but if they had stood in my counsel, if they'd have been there and heard my words, he says, then they could have proclaimed my words to my people, and they would have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. And then if you go to Isaiah chapter 14, Isaiah chapter 14 is a familiar passage. We know that that's dealing with um, <clears throat> this picture of the fall of Satan, Lucifer. And in verse 12, he says, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Notice what he says in verse 4. He begin, at the beginning, in other words, in setting the context for the passage, he's talking initially here, excuse me, about the king of Babylon. He calls it a proverb. Other translations call it a taunt, which I think is probably a very, very proper way to express it. And so then beginning in verse 12, though we see a shift in the language here to describe a heavenly scene, what we've just read. And this, this divine being that he's speaking of here in this passage is said to have fallen from heaven. Now, scholars will generally agree that this, this scene here is talking about Satan. Some don't. Some just pass right on through the passage as if he's still talking about the king of Babylon. And um, I don't think that's the case. They present a good argument, I will admit but I still think that it's Satan he's speaking of here. And he's described in verse 12 in the King James Version as Lucifer. Lucifer is nothing but the Latin Vulgate translation for the literal translation, son of the morning, son of the dawn, or star of the morning, son of the dawn. Um, so... Who's he, who's, what is he trying to say here? Well, he's the shining one. He's, he's, a, he's the day star, or, the, or as the New American says, the, the star of the morning. Most notably out of this passage, we want to see something here. 
that he has a throne. Notice in verse 13 where he says, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. What an expression. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. This creature here, this being, which I think is Satan, has a throne. He's a ruler. But notice what his desire is to raise it up higher. He says above the stars of God. I think probably an expression of these other heavenly beings that surround God's throne. These others who have privy closeness, if you will, nearness to the throne of God. They're kind of like on the inner circle. And his desire is to raise himself, elevate himself above them. And, and then not only that, he says in, at the end of verse, uh, verse, 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 well, I left off a, a one there. I've got verse four, but it'd be verse 14. And he says, I will make myself like the most high. Now, I know there are some that think that he wants to replace Yahweh. I think that's ludicrous. I don't think it even is fathomable to think that anybody thinks they could replace Yahweh when they, he is the creator and they are the created ones. I think what it says there, when it says, I will be like the Most High, is that's what he wants. He wants to elevate himself to a position where he has maybe the same kind of authority that Yahweh has or something near to that. The point of I want us to get here is that in this scene, you remember, we are talking about the council that surrounds God's throne. And he's talking here about this council, these stars of God, and he wants to elevate himself to a position higher than them. And he not only says then these things, and I've lost my place here for a second. Oh, and, and uh, he says uh, in verse 13, he says, I want to sit on the mount of assembly. Notice that word assembly again. There is an assembly of, uh, you know, we, we looked at this earlier, that this, this word that we're talking about here as divine counsel is also translated divine assembly or just plain assembly or congregation. It's this assembled uh, entourage that comes around God's throne that God has brought in close to him to participate in his earthly affairs, the government of the earth. Now, you might say, well, why does he even need these people? Why does he need these creatures? He doesn't. He doesn't need us either. But he's chosen to create us. He has chosen in his sovereign will to create them. And he has chosen to allow them to participate in what he's doing. And quite frankly, he's doing that with you and I. He wants us as his imagers to be participants with him. Now, I know you're going to be asking, well, how do I do it? What am I supposed to be doing? We're going to come to that real quick. Psalm 84 He, well, excuse me, before I get to Psalm 84, he says there, um, 
and verse 13. Let me find verse 13. I lost myself again. Um, well, I don't even know where I'm at now. Oh, I know. I'm back at Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. <laughs> Uh, don't turn there. I'm just making a reference back there. But back in Daniel, in, in chapter 7, verse 9, where it says the ancient one uh, took his throne, it's not the same word, but if you look in Strong's Dictionary, it says it's related to this word right here in verse 13, where it says the word sit. When he says, I will, I will sit in the assembly, Related words. In the same way, in other words, that the Ancient of Days sat in the court of judgment in this place of honor and authority and responsibility, he says, I will sit in the Mount of Assembly. In other words, he wants the same kind of authority and rulership that the Ancient of Days has. That's Yahweh. By the way, if you look in other places, many, most times I would probably, I think, best of my recollection, it's translated dwell. It carries the idea of permanence. In other words, well, like in Psalm 84, which I was going to read, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise, the psalmist says. And if you just think about that for a moment, he's talking about those who don't just come in there like we do on church on Sunday and we're here for an hour or two and we're gone. He's talking about those who dwell permanently in the presence of God. Psalm 91, in verse 1, it carries the same kind of an idea when he says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. The word dwell here is the same word as sit. It's the idea of permanence. He talks about dwellings, houses, places where you live in Scripture. Over and over, it's permanence. It's, it's those who get to be in the presence of Yahweh. And he's praising them. And you know what? It's not just the heavenly beings that he's always talking about, but he's talking about us. Us who can bend the knee and bow before Yahweh and enter into his presence. The book of Hebrews, the writer of that book, tells us that Christ has opened the way through the shedding of his blood where we can enter right into the holiest place, the most holy. You think about the sacred space that God has opened up to us where we can go in and worship him and participate with him and dwell in his presence. What an honor and what a privilege. Now, if we come down to, and you want to turn to this passage, 1 Kings chapter 22 and verse 19. We have another, I got just two more. And there are others, by the way, I had to be selective because I see I'm going to run out of time again. 
What is going on here in First, in, in first Kings 22? Well, the context here is Jehoshaphat, who's the, the king of Judah, went down to Ahab, who's the king of Israel at this time, and he wants to get his support for going to war with Ramoth, Gilead. And so the king of Israel uh, wanted to have an inquiry with a prophet. And so he asked Ahab about that. And of course, Ahab, all he has is his false prophets to turn to. You remember they had separated themselves in the northern kingdom from that of Judah, the southern kingdom. So he had only false prophets that he could turn to, and Jehoshaphat says, haven't you got a prophet of Yahweh we can talk to? And he says, well, there's this guy, Micaiah, but he never says anything good about me. And so Jehoshaphat, though, finally persuades him to get Micaiah. And so here's what happens then. Look at verse 19. And I, sorry, I didn't turn there myself. Oh, there, let me go over. 1 Kings chapter 22, and I think it's beginning with, I forgot. Did I say 1 Kings? I did, okay. And beginning at, look at um, verse 18. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, did I not tell you we would not, he would not prophesy good concerning me but evil? And notice then what Micaiah says. He says, uh, therefore, hear the word of Yahweh. I saw Yahweh sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven, that is the armies of heaven, this great host standing by on his right hand and on his left. Just another way of saying that what they said earlier, that they encircle his throne. They're all around about him. And Yahweh said, notice what he says here, who will persuade Ahab to go up that he may fall at Ramoth Gilead? Notice what God is doing here. He is talking to this host of heaven. And he's asking them, hey, who will go up there and persuade him to go to Ramoth Gilead because I want to kill him there? God has decreed that Ahab's going to die, but we got to get him up there. Now, who's got an idea about how we can do that? And so one spoke in this manner and another spoke in that manner. That's sort of like our committee meetings, isn't it? We all speak up. We got an idea. But notice what he says in verse 21. Then a spirit came forward and stood before Yahweh and said, I will persuade him. And Yahweh said to him, in what way? What's your proposal? How do you want to do it? And he says, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all of his prophets. And, you know, and here's the response. Yahweh said, you shall persuade him. In other words, it's like, that's a good idea. That'll work. And he says, you shall persuade him and also prevail. Go out and do so. I want you to notice something there, that it was Yahweh who had the final authority that says, go out and do it. But he invited his council members to participate in this discussion about what could happen and the potential that was there. And he finally found somebody that had an idea that says, yeah, that one will work. You go and do it. And so... 
This council had full participation with Yahweh in the administration of his affairs here on earth in the slaying of Ahab. Now there's one other place that I want us to look at. Well, you won't be able to turn there fast enough, so I'm just going to read these verses because it's interesting, and it all has to do with God's deliverance of the law at Sinai. In Acts chapter 7, in verses 52 and 53, it says there, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Of course, that's, that's Stephen preaching. And he says, and they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels, and you did not keep it. So you notice Stephen's reference here. You didn't keep the law delivered by angels. And then over in Galatians chapter 3, this is the Apostle Paul now. So we had Stephen. Now we have the Apostle Paul. And he says, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. And then finally, over in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 2, it says, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, the message declared by angels, and it's agreed, he's talking about the law delivered there at Mount Sinai. Now, if you go back to Exodus, you won't find any mention of angels there. Not a one. And you would think that it was Jehovah alone there on Mount Sinai dispensing the law. And he did, but he wasn't alone. Here are three New Testament references that tell us that he had angels, heavenly spirit beings that were present with him during this important meeting in which he dispensed the law to his people Israel. Now, take all these passages together, and I hope that you see a clear message of what the heavenly scene looks like, if you can possibly imagine it in your mind, and what is going on. But God has assistance or aids that help him, aid him, as it were, in the administration of his governmental affairs. He doesn't need them. It's his desire to delegate to them these responsibilities and have them share in that rule. And of course, the delight for you and I is to know that if we remain faithful, if we are loyal and devoted servants of his, we will be called one of those holy ones, and he will say to us, you enter into the joy of your Lord. You rule over 10 cities. You rule over five or whatever the case may be, if it's only one. What's the point? Is that when God calls his council meeting together, who do you think he's going to call? Those heads, those rulers over those cities, those who will participate in the rulership over this earth. You remember what Daniel said? He said, 
to the holy ones will be given kingship and dominion. That's what we should be hoping for. These things ought to be motivating us and moving us to live that kind of a life. And you say, well, how do I do it? Well, I'm out of time, but I have to do this. I have to finish up and tell you what God wants us to do. But as we said back in Psalm 82, he wants us to minister to the poor, the needy, the fatherless, the widow, and the stranger, the foreigner. Now, I don't have time to read all these passages. And by the way, I did not write all of them down. But in Exodus chapter 22, verses 22 and 24, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 8, verse 18, chapter, ah, excuse me, chapter 14, verse 29, chapter 16, verse 11, chapter 24, verse 17, 19, and 20, and 21, chapter 26, verse 12, and 13, chapter 27, verse 19, Psalm 10, verses 17 and 18, Psalm 68, verse 5, 84, 6, 146, 9, Isaiah 10, 2, by the way, Isaiah 1, 17 and 23, Jeremiah 5, 8, 7, 6, 22, 3, Exodus 22, excuse me, Ezekiel 22, 7, Zechariah 7, 10, Malachi 3, 5, Psalm 82, 3 and 4 that we've already looked at, and guess what? James chapter 1, verse 27, and more. Every single one of these passages talk about our responsibility to minister to the poor and the needy and the stranger and the fatherless or the orphans and widows. That is what God has called us to do. And if you don't have a heart that is sensitive to those things, and if you're not being moved to actually go and do that, then we're failing God. We're not doing what he's called us to do. And that's what he was doing in Psalm 82 was judging those gods who had failed in their responsibility to do that very thing. Now, I hope you have somebody, somebody that you can reach out to. Or maybe you can ask God, Lord, bring, bring somebody to me that I could minister to like that. We have people come here at church all the time. That's a corporate thing. That's all of us together. But what about you and me as individuals? You know, I have the privilege. It, it falls to me as pastor when people come here, you know, I, I get to do it. Is take them to the grocery store and let them buy some groceries. Take them by the fast food place and buy them some chicken or a hamburger or whatever it is they need. But you know, I, I'm preaching to myself. I need somebody myself, me, as an individual. Don't, don't just sit back and rely on, well, our church does this and our church does that and we help these people here. You need to have somebody in your life that you're ministering to. Now, I can just tell you, I, don't, I didn't find anything else anywhere in Scripture where God judged over anything else. 
or where, where he brought anything else to the attention of his people. Did you notice how many verses were there in Deuteronomy? It's because they were getting ready to go in to take possession of the land that God had promised to give them. And he told them over and over again, don't forget the poor. Don't forget the needy. Don't forget the fatherless. Don't forget the orphans. And don't forget the stranger who lives in your land. And minister to them and take care of their needs. I thank God for the people that I have the chance to to come to our church. People like Frank that I got, I got to take. I, I think the Lord must have sent him last week knowing this message was the next one in line. But that's not all. I should be doing more. And I suspect, probably, you should too. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the tender mercies and the great grace that you show us, each and every one of us, to do what you've called us to do and to be what you've called us to be. I know that we all have that desire to be a holy one. To hear you say, enter thou into the joy of your Lord. And now, Father, I pray that you will convict us and burn this, this message that you've given us in your word deep within our hearts so that we might, we might be found faithful when you come to judge us and open those books and reveal what our lives have been. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Brother King.